thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today I have the chance to speak with Mayday cinematographer Sam Levy about his work on the film. We also discuss the rules artists impose on themselves, expressionism in film, and Sam avoids my questions about the upcoming Fletch film. Quick note about this episode. This is the third time I've had the chance to speak with Sam. Uh, the first time was around the release of Maggie's Plan. The second was for Mayday. And, well, the third was for Mayday as well. Uh, we had audio issues the first time around, and Sam was incredibly generous with his time and decided to give it another shot. Decided to speak with me again. After already having a one-hour interview on Mayday, he sat down with me for another hour. I can't believe he was willing to do that. Um, we touched on this in the conversation, but I really wanted to take a minute, a minute rather, to thank Sam for doing this. He's one of my favorite guests, and I absolutely love speaking with him. So it's my pleasure to share our third conversation with you. Make sure you check out Mayday. It's definitely one of the good ones. Hope you enjoy the show. I don't know if I told you about my son or not, but he has he's autistic, my five-year-old. And okay. so I have a sensitivity to mm-hmm. any content that involves special needs uh, people. I tend yeah. to I tend to avoid it for the most part because I know I have a sensitivity that's unfair. That yeah. Something can be sincere and made with the best of intentions, but it can just strike me. But I loved this. This was. Funny, I don't normally tell we. I don't tell people that she's special needs. It's not anything I announce when we're right. doing it, and most people have no idea. But you wouldn't know. So for some reason, I felt like I'll just tell you because you might, it's sort of puts it in context, but I never, t- I mean, a lot of my friends know Trish and she's just, you know, she's really, uh, she's really funny and she's really, you know, really smart. She has cerebral palsy and, uh, you, know, you know, she has a mental disability that they, you know, they used to call it one thing that's not, you know, what what people, what you should call it now. And I, right. I don't even know what you're supposed to call it, but yeah, she's just really funny. And I, I would, I would, I would start doing um, the thing that's on that show where I would play her a song and then she would, you know, for a, like a tiny piece of it and she would guess it and then she'd start talking about it. And I would tell my friends, like, she said the most interesting thing they're like you need to record that stuff i, yeah. I want i would i want to hear it and a lot of people find it comforting she's, she's just very upbeat and she's a great public speaker yeah. for sure she's she has a fantastic presence about her yeah. she's able to nail these songs down really really quickly which is very i i don't care who the person is that's impressive i mean especially something like yeah. lisa lisa and the cult jam like things like that yeah. that I mean, when was the last time you would have heard these things, but there's just so much joy in it. And that comes through the relationship between the two of you is what you pick up on and how much you're feeding off of each other. And it's just, yeah, it's just, (laughs) it was wonderful to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, she lives in a community upstate. She used to live with my wife and I, now she lives upstate. So, you know, she usually can only get on a landline. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to get her a device so we could do this because the audio is way better, but just like recording her and then recording a song that we play. It's like, it's a nightmare. I mean, it's whatever. It's not a nightmare, but it's, I don't do it regularly. So I'm always like trying to relearn, you know, 
GarageBand, the mics, and whatever. There's something that might make it easier for you. There's a podcasting app that's called Anchor, and it's through Spotify. So you can actually, as long as you're not using advertising, you can go ahead and just play songs from Spotify in the show. And so you can just uplink it that way. And it's something that it's for music-based shows. And so it's actually, it's really super easy to use. So then it can exist within Spotify? Yep, exactly. And and it would go to all of the, I I, I think that it would only exist in Spotify because of the music stuff though. So normally you can distribute to all of them. That's how I play the songs anyways. That's great to know, Chris. Thanks. Yeah. No, yeah. of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would like to hear more. So that's, I, it's, I, I, it's not altruistic. It's for my own selfish needs. Okay, I would yeah. encourage it. So okay. thank you for taking the time again to talk about Mayday because I, I love this movie mm-hmm. and I, I want to share this film with people because this is the kind of film that we need more of. This is something that you don't see a lot of. This kind of... Uh, it's a unique voice that you can feel coming through in this film. Um, what was it that attracted you to this particular project? I, I know that we're going to end up covering ground that we talked about before. Yeah. And it feel very uh-huh. weird. So I apologize for that. And if to the listener at home, if we reference a previous conversation, it's because um, the original audio, we couldn't use it. Now we're re-recording. So try to make it sound like the first time, but we've been here before. <laughs> no, it's my pleasure. Um, uh, well, you know, um, what initially attracted me to Mayday was, well, you know, the writer and director, Karen Chinori, <clears throat> is also my life partner. We're married, we live together, and, um, and we've been together a long time. So she started talking about this idea, you know, for this kind of feminist action movie that's, you know, slightly like, uh, the Wizard of Oz or Alice in Wonderland has aspects of those kind of stories, like Portal to an alternate reality type of story. And um, initially, it was sort of different and was kind of set in a in, in a girls' school. And there, there are different iterations of it, but it always had uh, the aspect of this one woman. Uh, being transported somewhere else and then finding her voice and, you know, emerging out of all these dark things that happened to her. And I, it's hard to say exactly what drew me to it, but it just felt very powerful and and different. And it had an aspect of something that I like in a lot of movies, which is a, a person of action, I would call this, the protagonist of Mayday who's named Anna. You know, someone who's not passive, who's constantly like going places and doing things and very, very active, but she's also very melancholy at the same time. So someone who's not self-satisfied or chipper or happy-go-lucky, who's just kind of dark, but very active, like not passive in their dark thoughts or feelings. Hmm. There's something about that kind of character you see it in a lot of great cinema you know bergman kurosawa to you know agnes varda or you see it across many different cinema landscapes and it, it, it it's definitely in mayday and i don't at the time i think when karen first brought it up i don't i didn't sort of 
know about that pattern as something I liked, but I definitely do now. And that really was what first drew me to it. And, and you know, Karen, once we really started getting into it, wanted to make a short. And I, my instinct was, let's not even bother with a short. That will take, it will take a lot to make a short. And it takes more to make a feature, but in a way, it it's sort of incrementally more like to make that short thing go back and make the feature that's so much more work than just trying to go to the feature and um so i'll take a little bit of credit just for encouraging her to try and make it into the feature but otherwise it's completely her creation and this is a really bold feature film debut to come out with to have something that is it's set in a foreign country. It has all these sets. It's a fantasy piece. I mean, it kind of reminded me thematically of Peter Pan because there's this undercurrent of sadness in that that I feel like all the adaptations lose. And it feels like this is like a spiritual successor to that film where it has that sadness to it really. But at the same time, you could see this as a film of empowerment. And it's almost, there's this idea that it plays with in the audience where there's a little bit of like wish fulfillment where if if you had those things that you wish you desired, would they end up the way you would expect them? Um, and I'm not sure if that was by design or not, but that was something that felt like it was coming through in the film to me. Well, really, I love hearing you say that. I think the people who seem most satisfied watching this movie have the least expectations in a way, or just allow, allow the film to sort of happen as, as mm-hmm. like, as monodimensional as it, that that is to say, um, as opposed to, you know, I think also like our idea was this does deal with some dark themes, but let's not, we don't want this movie to take itself too seriously or we don't want to take ourselves too seriously while we're making it, which is challenging because it's just a lot of work to, to make anything, to, to make a feature film is, it's a lot of work, it's a big risk. It can, you know, it can feel scary sometimes, but you have to try, or we tried to just not get carried away and, and to just try and have some humor in it, which, you know, whether it succeeded or not is for everyone else to say, but that was, we, we tr- you know, we tried. We tried to laugh while we were making it and, so hopefully it has some levity there. It does. Maybe, people it does. respond very differently. I'm glad you think so. But you know, people respond very differently. It's um, it definitely you know, it evokes very strong reactions. Usually, like one way or the other. And it, it's um, yeah, it, it's just, it's um, it does leave a lot to the viewer to kind of intuit, which some people find very uncomfortable um i definitely have talked to some people who are you know gratefully willing to be honest with me about not responding to it so well and it it was definitely reminiscent not to sound like pretentious i've heard people say that about david lynch's movies too that after i saw mulholland drive and i'm not saying we're on david lynch's level or that this is mulholland drive but a friend of mine said, "You're after both playing Mulholland, with ambiguity. I, I think that's fine. I, I, I mean, I could see a certain pattern, but a friend of mine saw Mulholland Drive and said, it just made me feel stupid. 
I had no idea what was going on. And that made me feel stupid. And, and you know, um, I, mean, I don't want to say too much in that direction. You know, some other people I know see made it or just super plugged in and love not having everything hyper explained um, and that there's some room for you to sort of intuit things. Well, I think you know right away when your protagonist crawls through an oven and falls through a body of water and ends up in another dimension, I think you have an idea that there's going to be some room for interpretation here. Um, So you're letting the audience know right out of the jump that this is going to be something where it's not going to be typical paint-by-number storytelling. And there's a lot of people that they see when I watch a Lynch film or when I watch this, I don't feel like I ever fully grasp every concept that the filmmaker was trying to get across. I will never fully unlock Lost Highway. It's it's never going to happen. But I feel like there's an emotional honesty in both of these films that's very easy to read. That's there's the emotions are very pure and they're coming from a place that feels very easy to pick up on what the emotional truth is. If you're trying to follow it from a plot point of view, um, you might lose a little bit of the magic in doing that. If you get if you worry about those beats, then it's if you look at abstract art, if you look at a painting, um, it doesn't have to necessarily represent something in the physical world. You can represent something, and I think that yeah. good films do that also. You can have expressionism in film; it's fine. I totally agree. It, it's it, it, I think it's also depending on where you are and how you feel when you watch the kind of work you're describing is makes a huge difference. It, it probably does for any movie, but um, it's tricky. I think it's tricky to watch anything uh, when you're home and you have distractions. R- really any movie is like, it, it can be hard to get inside of it. And I definitely think that's true with our movie too. Or, you know, there, there may be some things to grasp that. It's a very big visual movie. So that's usually what, Kind of t- seems to draw people in is mm-hmm. just the, the visual palette. You know, it's a very photographic movie, uh, more so than most of the things I've, I've worked on before, or which just they're, they're photographic just in a more subtle way. And this is like, it's right there, you know, big landscapes and sunsets and, um, you know, going through the forest and out on the open water. And, and it's the kind of thing that just makes people think about photography, um, which is interesting because not everything does, you know, um, when there's people just having a conversation in an an apartment, um, you may not be thinking about the photography. Some people think about the photography, but most people don't. They're just thinking about what the conversation is. So that's interesting. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I got sort of sidetracked there, but well, I know, and I think that the it depends. So we we always think about photography in the sense that it's creating an emotional reaction. If you're looking, you know, if you look at Maggie's Plan or something like, or even Francis Ha, or what if you look at those, the visual um, palette that you've designed for those completely different than what you're working with here, but they are representative of the story that's trying to be told. And so there's something that you're doing that's supporting the narrative. Here, 
the narrative is being told through these broad, beautiful, wide strokes that aren't really, they don't have norm the typical plot machinations that you would find in narrative storytelling where it is more interpretive and it is something that, um, it, it, I, I don't want to come across as, this isn't something, this is a cerebral film, but it's also, it's very accessible and funny at the same time. There's a specific line in this movie where um, I'm a friend of your wife's that I think you're talking about this thing that's open to interpretation. Um, depending on where you are with your partner at that moment in time, it could be really funny for a whole spectrum of reasons. This could be really funny because, oh, yeah. look, this is how this guy is. It could be, oh, look, this is how I was last week. This is how I was today. And it just, those types of lines and that, those moments that I think it's, you're never filling in the blanks on what happened and why this would happen, but she has a yeah. understanding of this guy and she's like, okay, this is it. This is my judgment. It's being passed and it's done. And it, I think it's hilarious, but the reasons will be different every time I watch it, I'm sure. Yeah, that's Karen's favorite scene in the movie. It's Mia, Mia Goth, who plays Marsha, is sort of like helping, but kind of attacking this guy that, yeah, it's the kind of thing that can be interpreted in different ways. I guess we could talk about this scene, speaking specifically to people who've seen this movie, or we could just allude to it. I think I, I think that it would be fine to talk specifically about it because really there's nothing that it would give away to the whole. Yeah. Thing. I think you, you, this is a rare movie that I think I could go scene by scene, explain the entire film yeah, and it true. still wouldn't ruin I, it. I, I mean, think so yeah, that's a good point, Chris. Um, well, you know, Mia Goth basically plays two characters and a lot of uh, most of the actors play two different versions of a character. So Mia got you see her at the beginning of the movie, which not everyone picks up on because you see her somewhat briefly and her hair is totally different. Mm -hmm. She plays a bride on her wedding day that's very distraught. And then later she plays, you know, a different character named Marsha in this alternate reality. And then she meets her husband um, in this alternate reality. And so that's the scene that you're talking about. But so she says, you know, I'm a friend of your wife's <laughs> while she's yeah. kind of, you know, attending to this guy who you saw very briefly. It's kind of, you know, it, it's like you kind of maybe have to watch the movie twice to really catch this, but which is, you know, um, it is what it is. But, uh, but she's talking to this guy that she married, but she they sort of don't remember each other in this alternate reality. And she says, you know, I'm, I'm a friend of your wife. And, you know, his wife is sort of her, but either in this alternate reality, so maybe it's not. So you can see, yeah, people are listening to this. You can see how you can go down a path or a rabbit hole or whatever you want to call it. And it, there's myriad ways to interpret what's going on. And I would just say as, you know, as the cinematographer and one of the producers of this movie and someone who helped develop this into a feature, you know, there's probably no one who read the script more than I did other than, you know, Karen who wrote it. Um, there's plenty of people who've read it plenty of times and it's, it was, it was very challenging to prepare and plan in some ways, just like the logistics were in many ways, like any other, feature film, which is always challenging, you know, 
scheduling it and planning, but just like getting the story down because it's highly interpretable um, was tricky. And one of the great things about making this movie, which we shot entirely in Croatia, which was fantastic. It's one beautiful great, locations. I agree. Um, we all stayed in the same hotel. Uh, all the actors, the entire crew, everyone stayed in the exact same hotel, which never happens. Uh, usually, unfortunately, you know, the actors and the director will stay in a nicer hotel. The crew stays in a slightly less nice hotel. And usually uh, uh, as a DP, like sometimes I'm in the nice hotel, sometimes they don't want to pay and they put me with, with the crew and I'm happy in either place. But anyways, we were all in the same place. And so we would, and they, they had a buffet, a really good buffet for every meal. So we ate every single meal together. Um, breakfast before we go to set, lunch on set. And there was a great Croatian caterer who we loved. And then at night we would go have dinner together. And our editor, we had a fantastic editor named Nick Ramirez, um, who had been the assistant editor on Lady Bird, which I worked on. And I, you know, really, we got along great. And, um, you know, he did Mayday and he was there in Croatia with us, which is very rare that an editor would be on location with you. And we would have dinner every night. And this guy helped me a lot. I'll be, you know, I can be, I'm, I'm happy to be honest and say, even though I'd read the script at least twice as many times as he did, we would sit and he would explain things to me about the story. And, you know, in the context of like, okay, you guys are, going to shoot on the open ocean tomorrow and throw Grace Van Patten off a boat. Not throw her, but you know, yeah. you film her in the middle of the ocean. There's eight beats that you need to get. Uh, these are the eight beats. And these are several other beats to consider that aren't necessarily in the script. And these are all scenes that Karen and I had broken down. We have a really comprehensive shot list. And we, you know, we live together and we prepped this movie for years. But then a fresh voice could come in and explain these things. And in the context of what kind of what you're talking about, of things being open to interpretation, when you're planning, you have to take that into consideration and also just sort of not worry about it. And you're just dealing with the physicality of these things, which but anyway, it, it, it was a great experience. And the fact that we could really all be together and really just you know, we could decompress together and then Nick would go off and cut. Karen and I would, usually I would go watch the dailies in a room next to him and Karen would go back to her room and prepare, you know, analyze the script for the next day. So it was just, you know, it was a great, a great way to make a movie that that is rare, unfortunately. How, so then did you have an assembly of this pretty quickly from the time that you wrapped shooting? We did because Nick was with us in Croatia. He was he's very fast. He's a super creative, uh, collaborative editor, and very fast. As he you know he had a very extensive career as an assistant, and um, he just was very on it. And um, so we came back to New York where we all live, and there was an assembly ready. Uh, it's funny, I, knew, I know a lot of uh, filmmakers, directors who will not watch editors' assemblies because you know, it sort of has everything in it. They, they put every conceivable angle in line. And 
Um, I'd never heard that suggestion before. And we, we watched it and was like, oh my God, what, what is, you know, what is that? Um, not because he did a bad job or anything. It's just, it's just jarring. And yeah. um, so then Karen went and started with him, you know, from the beginning and they built it back up. Um, and then, but, you know, she maybe was in there. I forget exactly how long. It was something like two weeks of in-person editing before the global COVID shutdown happened. Um, oh, wow. So we, we saw that coming pretty yeah. quickly and we, you know, being part of the producing team, I was helped to sort of move everything online to this program called Evercast, which is like Zoom, like how we're talking mm -hmm. now, but more designed for editing, for people to be watching together and you can hear a little better, the video's a little better. And they edited almost completely that way, you know, wow. it was in Brooklyn, we're in lower Manhattan and, um, but it was that scary at that time, especially in New York, you know, man, oh, now yeah. some, you know, 700,000 people have died in this country from COVID and it was just so scary, you know, it was scary to go outside, it was scary to take out the trash at that time. It's um, still kind of, I mean, my, my five-year-old had a direct COVID exposure, uh, week and a half ago. It's wow. still scary. I mean, he came back negative. Everything's fine. It looks like it's going to be okay. Me and my wife are both vaccinated. So we feel we're doing all the right things, but then you want your kid to be in school at the same time. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. these things happen. And it's just, I, I remember that time period of New York and just how it seemed like, oh my God, it, living in Arizona it's so far away. It was like, dear God, this is going crazy there there's there's some small town in upstate that was like shut down completely where they and that was the first place they yeah. did that and it was like this little little town was completely locked down from everything else it's like wow we can actually yeah. do that here that happens and then you see where we are now almost two years later and it's just yeah god man yeah so sorry <laughs> oh no i'm glad you're i'm glad your child's okay and you guys are okay um yeah, it is still very scary it was much more scary back yes. then for all of us yeah. pre-vaccine and in New York at that time, with the you know, shortly, maybe a month after the the shutdown, it was so scary here. So in New York specifically. And you know, how that manifested for Karen and Nick editing was they just edited like we're talking now remotely. And then once they got to a, a place where they had, you know, a, a fine cut, like a, a close towards to the end, and they started wanting to show it to people, you know, normally you'd invite friends to the editing room or rent a screening room, mm -hmm. actually going to see a friend's movie tonight in a screening room, you know, we're all gonna wear masks, we're all vaccinated. She, you know, she's showing it to friends um, to get notes, which is, really valuable to stand in a room with people and just feel feel the energy even if it's not a comedy you you can feel i mean a comedy you can actually hear people laugh is what i mean but yeah you can feel people pick up on things and we just that never happened the first time we saw this movie with anybody was in the same room was the other night last week on thursday was the the premiere theatrical wow. premiere, and I mean, I'll get back to them editing, but just to say for a minute. So we yeah, premiered yeah. last week on Thursday 
October, no, September 30th. Um, yeah. And uh, Karen did a Q&A after, and uh, she was saying, oh, I think um, my composer, Colin Stetson, who did the score, I think he's here, is he here? And he raised his hand, he's like, I'm here. And that was the first time they met in person, was oh in, during, a Q, during a Q&A. Um, and wow. there was, uh, you know, there's a lot of people there that night that, you know, all the people from Magnolia, the distributor, and mm-hmm. we'd only met everybody on, on Zoom. And that's, you know, every, pervasively everyone's experience in, in, in different areas of life these days. But, but the, way, the, the challenge for us, and especially for Karen and Nick, was uh, just editing remotely, but then showing it to friends. Um, there are a couple of filmmaker friends who are really helpful, but they would, you know, they would watch a link and then they would send notes. And then we started organizing so-called screenings where we would send the link. Let's say everyone started watching at 8 p.m. It's about an hour and a half. So let's say like 9.45, let's all get on a Zoom and we'll talk. So people would talk and we would organize these groups and we just like had to figure it out. Um, but it's just not the same as, you know, feeling, watching people, hearing people, just feeling their, their, uh, the way they take it in. When you hear like comedy, like you mentioned, that's easy to read because the laughter in the room takes over, but those in a comedy also, but in a drama or in a thriller, anything like that, it's the, those moments when there's no noise, when the rustling stops, there's nobody eating, there's nothing going on. And when you have a bunch of, cynical people that know how to do this and have done this a million times and you get them and you break through and you have that moment where you can tell everybody's connected to it. You can tell when things are working. And then when you can feel when things aren't working and there's more rustling and movement and those it's, I don't think you can recapture those things. And at the end, they might give you notes, but those things that you can't even, they're not even conscious of as an audience that we sort of become this yeah. one thing, this entity that you, you can't, yeah. That's great. That. You know, the other thing that was actually our producer, producer Lucas Joaquin, a very talented producer, works with Iris Sachs a lot. He said, you know, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll send out a link. We'll do these Zoom screenings. And, but you have to remember, like, people, some people may not be willing to give you critical notes because it can be uncomfortable or they're not comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. So, being in the room negates that a bit because you can just pick up how people are responding even if yeah there's no laughter or what have you but what yeah what you said you can feel the engaged silence and you can feel the uh disengaged silence too or or the the rustle of Mm -hmm. of of rustling in the seat and yeah that that stuff you can pick up on but what people actually are going to say is they might be more polite than what they actually thought and i've i've definitely been to screenings too where i maybe emphasize the things i liked and all allude to the things i didn't like you know try to be constructive but yeah sometimes you're not totally it's hard to verbalize what you reacted to and you can we can and as whenever you take in feedback, you can end up drawing into one word or one phrase 
and draw all these conclusions from it that absolutely were not the intention of the person who wrote or said those words. And there's disconnects in communication that I think you're just leaving too much out with that, that it's just, you know, I'm trying to take the words to express how I felt about this. And then you hear certain words and they mean something to you and something that I didn't even intend as a note becomes this pathway that you just go down. And it, yeah, it seems like a difficult, yeah. difficult way to make a film, but you, there's something to be said also for kind of making something in a vacuum where that isn't a yeah. part of it, where it's just, you know what, I'm going to make this representative of a filmmaker's intent without having any feedback, without having anybody come in and give me notes, without having a studio, whatever those things. I mean, I know that's clearly not how this was made, but you know, you think of when you go to a film festival and you see a screening made by a couple of kids that did something on an iPhone and they just made something and you can find sometimes something because it's so singular and didn't have any notes that you can find beauty in that because it's just something really special in that way. So both have their pros and cons. I'm not sure where what's the best side to lie. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thought. In our case, the alternative was to just completely shut down and wait an indeterminate right. amount of time, which is the position a lot of people were in yeah. who were lucky, like we were, to actually finish shooting. I know a lot of people who were, you know, three or four days into shooting projects that are still not back up or, you know, um, maybe had a couple of days left or, you know, all, all, all manner and all different stages of production or post-production. And we just always said like, just, it's important that we keep going. We can't stop. We, we need to transition to online and just see how it goes. And if it's horrible, we'll just stop. But it just seemed to work uh, in terms of the you know workflow of, of making it, and then eventually we finished and we managed. You know we were lucky to get into Sundance and the dramatic competition, which was completely online. And right. um, that was another instance of well, what does it mean to be in an online festival and. You know, those conversations are sort of brief because it's still, you know, the Sundance board and, you know, community. And um, it just felt like, well, the alternative is to not be in, in a festival or you know, we could wait, but who knows what what will happen or when, when we're really coming out of COVID or, um, and it always just felt like, well, let's just, we should, keep going and um, even releasing the movie now in you know, October, 2021, um, there were conversations about waiting until next year at, di you know, at different stages. And it just felt like, well, e even though, you know, it's towards the end of the year when a lot of things tend to come out mm -hmm. and many movies were released last week on Friday when ours came out, but it just felt like we should still like, just keep the momentum going and just, 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 roll it out and it just felt like the best the best way to go and just just keep moving and and put it in front of people and and just just keep it going that that makes a lot of sense and i think that building off that momentum it's something that makes something feel more solid it's kind of like even though 
more than half the movies that I love, I never saw in a theater. I saw them on video. I caught up with them on digital, whatever it is. But for whatever reason, if things are, they go through that life cycle of going to a festival, getting that kind of early coverage, they build that buzz, they come out in a few theaters, even you know the small indie stuff that might not come to your local theater. When you finally catch up with it on Amazon or Netflix or however you see it or at a revival house, it feels more solid. It feels like something that carries more weight. I don't know why that is. It could be just that it's hung out in the ether for a long time, but there's, I, I can remember almost every film I've ever seen in a theater um, where I, I've, I know the time period, I can probably remember the exact theater and there's a good chance I know the people that I saw it with. Um, the things that I've seen on Netflix at two o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep, I have no clue. I don't even know what year I saw them in. So I, yeah, there's something like, about that experience that matters. I've heard people say they remember things they read on paper better than what you read on a tablet or on your Agreed, phone. yeah. true for me. I think I'm just uh, what they call a digital immigrant who, you know, didn't <laughs> grow up with smartphones or really the internet. So it's probably something to do with that. But I, I, I agree. I think, like, you know, what, when you're in a movie theater, you know with your phone turned off and with with distractions minimal and it's a dark room the, the focus helps ingrain these these images and the experience in, in your brain but yeah at the same time I, I probably most of the the movies that i saw that made me want to become a filmmaker are all things i probably watched you know on, on vhs or you know that yeah that i rented uh, in, in in the video store um, around the corner, growing up, and maybe I've seen some of those things, mm -hmm. but they the massive impression that they made on me. Uh, and many times, probably watched them, you know, on my parents' old, not very good TV in the middle of the day. And there's probably yep. glare, and there <laughs> you know, a million distractions, and I think I talked to many people who uh, said. Yeah, you know, when you're a teenager or whatever, you know, young, you could watch two, three movies a day, easy, and just like happy to do nothing else and be totally unconcerned with with anything else. And um, yeah, that'd be a struggle for me now. Or be like, a, you know, I could see like, well, okay, um, you know, uh, you know. The, the Bellatar movie, Satan Tango, which is seven hours yeah. long, which I've actually <laughs> seen in a movie theater. Um, but it's like, well, I should. You're committed. That's that's something I need to do. And it, it's important. Um, when I saw I did, it. I did three days on the ring cycle. So, I, yeah, wow. I mean, yeah. To, 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 I was working in opera at the time. So it, it wasn't my show, but it was, yeah, it made sense. But I, I've done that. And that's commitment. Yeah, or like, yeah, the Oedipus cycle. I remember when I was growing up, there was like an Oedipus cycle series of plays being done at the Williamstown Theater Festival in the Berkshire. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was over two nights. I think it was, it was like four hours per show or something. But yeah, like if, if there's an important event, I, could, I would probably figure it out. But it's, I really did watch two two movies a day easily when, when I was a teenager no problem and I'm sure I watched three 
plenty of times too. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, well, you don't you don't take note of it. There's not as many things pulling you away from that. You, your responsibilities, yeah. hopefully. I, I mean, I come from a middle class family. My responsibilities. I, I didn't have to work unless I wanted to. And I, my, the job that I had was to get gas money and to buy albums and to go see movies yeah. and to do things like that. So it wasn't like there were these pulls. And so, yeah, I could easily rent three movies and then go back the next day and rent another three movies and do that yeah. several times. And it would, and you're right, there were less than ideal conditions. It was on a 30 inch through four by three TV. And I still fell in love with these things because as important as the images and sound and all those things and the purity of that, sometimes storytelling can transcend a shitty projectionist. Sometimes it can totally. transcend um, a bad TV. It can, a good story can connect and find a way through all those obstacles. And oddly enough, sometimes we end up falling in love with those obstacles. And um, yeah. it's tough for me to go back at this point and watch the cleaned up version um, the criterion of something like uh, Night of the Living Dead, because I got so used to seeing the yeah. crappy version of it for so long that that's not what he ever wanted that to be, but that's what I yeah. fell in love with. So a lot of people complain when Coppola and Gordon Willis, who's the DP who shot all the Godfather movies, mm -hmm. I'm sure most people listening to this probably know that, but they remastered all the Godfathers um, for DVD or. I guess it was Blu-ray. I'm trying to remember when that was. Like early 2000s. It's been yep. a while now, but um, but they really cleaned a lot of things up. And they the big thing they did, they added contrast to it, which a mm -hmm. lot of cinematographers were upset about. At the time, I was working a lot for Harris Savitas, you know, one of the best cinematographers yep. to ever work. And he also had he sort of knew Gordon Willis a little bit and we had a lot of big angry conversations about these dvds that came out with all this contrast and i remember he was like go out and find me that half inch you know vhs tape of the godfather that's that one's uncorrupted that's what it's supposed to look like and it you know the, one of the challenges of what we used to call home video and now we'd probably call it streaming but mm -hmm. one of the old old challenges of home video was if if a movie was in a theater on a film print, you'd want to try and preserve what that looked and felt like to be able to watch it at home. So you'd transfer to video and try and get the sort of electronic version of the movie to feel like the print that you watch in the theater, which is challenging, but not, you know, not impossible. And we still kind of do that, but, you know, even though most things are digitally projected now, even if they're captured on film, most things are projected you know digitally yep. that way but they still feel it still looks different like the contrast is different than what a monitor can do like a monitor has essentially more inkier deeper contrast than a projection would so we're always trying to figure out the balance and it gets more and more complicated all the time with things like 4k hdr which is hyper hyper sharp and realize that most filmmakers i know We'll, we'll do, like, if you're required to do these high resolution passes of the movie, you sort of do them, but try and de-emphasize that thing. Um, but it's interesting, you know, what you're, what you're saying about, I mean, I think like this is a conversation about art restoration writ large that 
I know yeah. like when the Sistine Chapel was was uh, restored, a lot of people were upset because they thought it looked like Disney. You know, it was sure. right. Well, that's not really what it looked like. Um, or at the time, having a conversation with a friend of mine, majoring who wanted to become an art restoration person, who of course felt like, well, no, they should, restoring art is it in itself an artistic process, sort of like translating a foreign language or, you know, it, it's its own discipline and craft, which is true. The same way that restoring a film would be. Um, I think, you know, luckily the criterion people are very sensitive and I, I feel like they, they try, they try to understand the philosophy behind certain movies and just like the anthropological approach to movies. I, I feel like they try, it's not a perfect science because it doesn't really, nothing is, but um, yeah, I'm just glad they're doing it and people still will you know subscribe to their channel or buy, buy the dvds well it's to me it kind of feels like the the rule of thumb and i and i know i've said this before on here but it's just the that if it looks like something that could have existed when the film was made then you're on the right path if okay. you're taking because we have capability now to color correct in ways that we couldn't have done at the time that we just there was yeah. certain limitations because you're taking this chemical reaction in a dark room and you can only go so far with it um you know you, yeah. so there's limitations to that so if you're going beyond those limitations it feels a little bit off to me but then again i'm also yeah. if it's coppola sitting down and wanting to redo this have at it it's yours man because because yeah. it's really the sometimes it's the the cutting of it that bothers people and i, I don't know i yeah. kind of prefer the final cut of apocalypse now more than anything else the godfather 3 cut that he just did is actually far superior so have, have at it yeah <laughs> well it's, it's interesting there's no rule to any of this no um, actually you know as karen i've been we've been together a long time karen used to um she used to program a lot of uh film uh film viewings and she, she was a a curator and she curated one great thing she curated with a friend of ours matt connors who's a, a, a big painter was an, an evening of scopitone films which are early music videos that you know scopitones used to be these 16 millimeter music video films that would play in jukeboxes like these you know video jukeboxes yeah. you have reels of 16 millimeter film in them which is crazy to think of now there's actually a cinema museum that Karen and I went to in Montreal a long time ago that had a functional one that was wow. wild. But so Karen and Matt found all these scopatones. I think they, some of them, they just bought on eBay. Um, and we restored some of them. Like we just had them cleaned and we just simply went to a colorist that I was working with at the time and we just transferred them to video. Um, mm. And one interesting thing about several of these scopatone music videos was that they were very pink you know magenta pink that yeah. definitely was a byproduct of age a lot of film a lot of uh, film prints turn pink over time if they're not i think if partially if they're not kept in a certain temperature but, but even if they are and depending on the, the film stock 
they turned very pink. And so we put it up where we were like, wow, that's so beautiful. The pink was so great. But, but then the colorists, because they're starting, they have very sophisticated controls and they showed us like, you know, we could totally remove that. We can take all the magenta out, you know, just add green, which is the opposite of magenta. And it's like, just looks neutral. And we were like, oh no, no, we can't, we can't get rid of the pink. Like, it's just too beautiful. And that's, it was kind of what you're talking about. It's like, well, it sort of makes it look old. Like we could de-age all this stuff and like remove all the film grain and you know, there's many different things you can do, which is interesting. But we, I think we maybe it took a little bit of it off because some of them, it was very dense. And if you took a little bit of it off, you could sort of like be there present with it a little more. It's but really interesting. I forgot about that. At, at the end though, it's rules around art. I mean, the, the reason that you get, <laughs> you find a passion for art is probably not because you love structure and rules. I mean, there are things for storytelling and, you know, that you can have, but really I'm always looking for people that take my preconceived notions, my ideas, my rules, my gospel and blowing it up. Anybody that can take anything that I believe to be faith and say, no, you were wrong about all that. I love that. I'm constantly yeah. looking for that. I'm always seeking out new voices that will completely um, destroy my, my belief system, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always impressed with people who are very firm in their beliefs and happy to expound on it in a specific way, because I find, especially with art, I don't really have those kind of structures so much. I mean, there's stuff, there's stuff that I like more than others, but it's mm -hmm. interesting when people have very firm convictions. I mean, Harris Savitas was a lot like that. It, he, he attended, he, he was very stringent about the things that he liked and didn't like. And most stuff he didn't like, especially in movies. It was very difficult to um, find a movie that he was like really, truly satisfied with. So when there was something, I'm trying to think of an example, but you know, like, let's just say the work of Gordon Willis, you know, was, mm -hmm. was fairly un unimpeachable for him as it is for a lot of us. He inspired like an entire generation of DPs. Yeah. So it was interesting to just find an area where he could feel okay or, you know, safe um, just sitting and watching something. Those are, and the, I mean, people like that that's why that he worked works at the level that you look at that the career and that's why it is what it is because of those rules and those standards and not accepting anything less than um as an outsider i i don't i don't have any rules about any of that and i'm glad that people do have those rules that they want to play in certain areas um because it's sometimes it's the the way that we box ourselves in can create like our most beautiful work it's the uh, limitation is really important in expression you know that you're saying um but then again rules get broken all the time when you you know you think of somebody that's only working in one medium for painting but then they also start incorporating video and make it the performance piece and these other things that start happening and they're breaking those rules and you, yeah is it valid is it invalid i i yeah i, I don't know i that's not for me to decide but it the one thing that my one rule I think I have that I'm pretty 
unflinching in for the most part is intent. If it's cynical and it comes through as cynical, then I'm not interested in it. Yeah. Um, if your intentions are, you're trying to express something and a million of the things go wrong that can go wrong along the way, but I can still pick up on the fact that this was made with a pure heart. I'm going to pull for you and I'm probably going to find things in there that I can champion. Um, but something that looks amazing, sounds perfect, is executed at the top. But really at the end of the day, it there, you don't have that feeling of people that were really putting on a show, then it's not for me. Yeah. I love that. I love what you just said. So there you go. That, that, that's a, as an audience member, as, yeah. a, as an online critic, that would be my rule. And it's why certain things just don't work for me. Yeah. Um, when you have multiples of five in the title, chances are it's not going to work. But then again, there's plenty <laughs> of things that I love that are 10 down the line and they prove me wrong all the time. So, but it's just not yeah. generally what I go for. Yeah. It's interesting how when you watch something, you generally know, you, you sort of pick up quickly. You kind of know what, like in the first shot, usually if it's like, oh yeah, I'm into this um, yeah. or, or not. And sometimes things build and pull you in and that can be great. Um, and I try to, you know, I try not to be too judgmental. There, when, when I was young, like young, trying to work my way into becoming a cinematographer, you know, and when I was a camera assistant and operating, um, I worked on this movie, Pieces of April, um, mm -hmm. as, as, as a camera operator, the DP is great cinematographer, Tammy Riker, and she hired me as her be a camera operator did you know some kind of second unit stuff on that movie it was a great experience and the producer was this guy gary winnick who also was a director to charlotte's web and um, a bunch of other great movies and i remember at the time we were talking about some other movie that had just come out and i don't even remember what it was but tammy and i were really criticizing this movie oh, we don't like that movie and he said, guys, it's so hard to make a movie. Like, we were just kind of dismissing this thing. Yeah. It was so hard. I was like, yeah, of course it's hard. But that doesn't mean we can't uh, have our opinion or respond. or That's what it's all about. And it's funny, the older I get, the more I understand what he was saying. I think he had just been through the pain of, like, making stuff and maybe it wasn't received really well or what, whatever. It's just, I think he just, he had empathy. You know, he was this wonderful guy who really had a lot of empathy. And we were just blowing off steam and the way that we were and, and just really being critical of, of something. And he was just encouraging us to just to be more loving, I think, basically, or just to, to, to just think about what you're saying. You know, you guys yeah. do this too. And the more I've, I've always remembered him saying that, unfortunately, he passed away about six or seven years ago. Um, and for some reason, that just stuck in my head. And yeah, the more time goes by, the more I understand where he was coming from. Well, and I think that that's something that we just pick up with age, whether you've made a movie or not, life is going to kick you in the teeth repeatedly. When you're yeah. a teenager, everything seems easy and you take it for granted because you haven't had. And you feel things <laughs> fully 
with yourself when your heartbreak, when you're a teenager, it is complete heartbreak. Um, you're not calloused yet. And there's a beauty in that. Um, but there is a lack of empathy also. I actually, I think we often dismiss thoughts and that time period and people who are going through the, that. But I think that it's actually, there's far more honest emotional reactions. It's, we gain empathy because it's, you know, we understand how hard life is. Um, and so while a teenager might not be empathetic yet, they're having pure, honest, emotional reactions to things. And I, and there's something yeah. to glean from that for sure. And that's why um, music is something that generally speaking, it's the only form of art that as you age, your opinion is less valued. The, yeah. the, the opinion of a 14 year old when it comes to popular music is by far more relevant than somebody who's 70. Now you yeah. take somebody who's 70 that has a wide understanding of film history that's been writing about it this whole time. You're going to listen to that before somebody who's there. They were indoctrinated into movies through Tony Stark and the X-Men or whatever. So yeah. they're not going to seem worldly in that way. And you value that opinion. But then with music, we don't value those opinions. And I think that that's, yeah. it's the emotional reaction that we get from music. And I think that's why, because it's pure when you're a teenager. Yeah. It's funny. A couple of years ago, I went and saw a movie that was very popular and I went inside and I was just not into it. It's like trying to connect. I just couldn't, but there was a group of, it's probably like 10 teenagers. They're all young women and mm -hmm. they were laughing. They were having like the time of their lives, the time of their lives. And I remember I was like, well, it's for them. But it was like, that's very real. Like it yeah. was amazing. It was like, I wish, I was having that experience. I just wasn't. Um, and uh, it, was, it was interesting. It, made, it did help put it in context. Like, okay, well, I, I get it. They're having such a great night. And I was, with, I was with a friend. I think it's usually, well, it can be a mixed bag seeing something in a theater with, with a friend. If they're hating it, if you pick up on their energy. Generally, I find if I go with a group of people, I have a little more fun. Um, but yeah, there's, there's been a number of times when me and my wife were first starting our, our courtship where I would drag her to things that I, we didn't know each other that well. And so I would go take her to some three and a half hour revival. I, you know, the, it was the, um, the conformist, I think I took her to see something like that and she hated me. And I could tell about an hour and I'm like, okay, so this is not one that we go to. This is just something right. for me. This is for my that. side. And I, when I look at it from her point of view, it's like, yeah, this, this just doesn't work for her. She has no interest in this. But, yeah. um, and she's not wrong for her opinion on it. She's totally fine. That's not going to work for yeah. her. So that's so funny. I could see that. Yeah. It's not an easy, it's not an easy movie. A big visual movie, but it's yeah. it's kind of it's not it's not like the most fun movie to sit and watch, but it's very yeah, it's very graphic and has a it's lot a of cinematic tension. experience. So it feels like that's yeah. that's what you go to a revival house for. That's yeah. to me. She just totally. wants to disconnect and have a good time. She doesn't care about that yeah. part of it. it. So it's funny since Karen, you just get back to meeting Karen. Yeah, yeah please, sorry. But you know, it's, well, it's not really Mayday, but Karen and I have been together for a long time. And I think one of the things that led up to her creating Mayday was we, we I can't tell you how many times we've been to movies, and it happens to this day all the time, where we leave 
And it used to be, I, I would have enjoyed something a lot. And she would say, well, it's fine. It's just the female characters were ridiculous. I mean, think about it. Think of how, you know, underdeveloped they were just what a, such a cliche i mean they were there to get brutalized or be the girlfriend or you know just to help the man on his journey and i mean for years we would come out of movies and she would say the exact same thing until i finally really started understanding and understanding what she was saying and looking at things differently so when eventually she did bring up Mayday, I really understood where she was coming from. And now I think the same thing when I watch, honestly, you know, most, most movies do still have those tropes. For sure. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting. So like, yeah, what you were, I don't know if your wife had, any of those thoughts when she was watching The Conformist. But, oh, she um, could very easily. Yeah. I mean, you, you've seen this. So yeah, well, of course. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it would be easy to say that's exploitation. That wouldn't, that's not a, that's not a long yeah. walk. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, yeah. Karen actually recently, recently wrote an essay. It's in Harper's, uh, Harper's Weekly or Harper's Bazaar uh, about, you know, the title of the essay is, is my film too violent? Um, because a lot of men producers or just other people that we work with, when they read her script, were like, this is so violent. Um, and really when it comes down to it, it was seeing, you know, a bunch of female characters do certain things in the movie, like, you know, shoot men huh. or just be, you know, fight, I think was what they were responding to. It's a great essay that people should check out. Um, I, I I will because her film I her film the, doesn't feel violent to me in that or any more violent than anything else I watch. It, yeah, it's, it, it's it's interesting and it's definitely a lot of people had that reaction when they read the script. There is a concern among people that oh, people aren't going to want to audition for this because because it's so extreme and so violent. So many young women went nuts over it to, and just wanted to read and wanted to audition and, you know, all, all the, um, you know, the actors who ended up doing it were just so passionate about the material and about Karen and it, it ended up being a great thing that was definitely born out of what I'm describing coming out of so many movies. Um, you know, there was, uh, Karen and I went to the Oscars together the year that Lady Bird was nominated for, you know, a lot of Oscars and, you know, I worked on Lady Bird. So I got to go, I wasn't nominated for cinematography, but, um, but, you know, they, it was a very loving group of producers who just invited us to go. So we went and they played a, a, a montage of war movies. Um, I think, you know, I think it was cause we were near Veterans Day and they were honoring mm -hmm. veterans, something like that. I could have that wrong, but just to honor veterans, which is a good sentiment. And they played a montage of probably like 50 different films, you know, cut up. And there wasn't a single woman in the entire montage, of course. Um, and that made, and we were trying to get made off the ground at that time. We had, you know, a few meetings the next few days. Oh. People were happy to talk because, you know, Lady Bird was doing well. And so I could, 
into a couple of rooms and yeah and um our producing partner jenna decent who we love said like i usually talk about that talk about like how you make that make to feel and why mayday is important because of that and you know the the the, the women in this story do a lot of the things that you see in that montage like fire guns they're you know under you know sniper scenes and like motorcycles there's explosions there's a lot of the things you see in that montage and of course i was firmly you know firmly um thinking about female characters the way karen does from all my years of being with her and talking and you know i immediately could see without her saying anything like yep i know i see this is an amalgamation of all the things we've been talking about for all these years. And it, you know, it was nice to be there with Ladybird, which is not like that. Um, no. But it's also not a war movie. So you don't, you know, there's definitely some uh, movies with uh, military and with war that have women in them, but, but it's kind of rare. It's incredibly rare. Um, it's far more represented than women are actually in battle. I mean, there are, I yeah. mean, it's, there's from a certain point in time, even if you're going back and only looking at World War II, it's just not, women were involved in that. And there's yeah. plenty of women that lost their lives in every war. There's no war where women aren't affected by it, um, even if they weren't directly enlisted in our army. But it just, yeah, that, that that's an interesting lens to view things through, and I'm definitely guilty of that. And I think we all are, where we only see things from our perspective. It's difficult to break that without somebody nudging you and saying, hey, you need to look at this beyond the lens of a straight white guy from middle-class America. You need to think about yeah. this. What does this say about minorities? What does this say about women? What does this say about gender roles? What is this, all these things? And it's important to be open to that. Um, I know that I have my perspective that's limited um, and I'm always open to hear something else. Um, and the thing is, even though that, that I love about your film, it's it calling something like that. It's a reaction to this, but it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel preachy in that way. It doesn't feel like this is the, the moment of here's the women picking up the gun to do this thing because um, there was this time in the 90s where feminist action films were basically a woman getting beat up by a man. Look, that shows that this is feminism. Um, and this it, this is something that doesn't call attention to itself in any way like that. It just feels like there's a voice behind it of somebody who is has those feelings, I guess, that that would be their particular point of view. Um, but it doesn't feel like you're trying to indoctrinate anybody change anybody's mind and that's how you do change people's minds i think just by showing them instead of telling them you just show them and that's what you've done it's beautiful in that way i like your optimism <laughs> <laughs> it's a start right yeah i mean that, that's how we chip away at things it's the incremental changes it's the willingness to yeah. be open to it to seeing the world from out empathy like you were saying that's the biggest part of it, it if you can have empathy to somebody else's point of view, then yeah, yeah. it's important. But I I've taken up way too much of your time, Sam. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I'm, I like we've it. done the I love talking done, to you. 
So uh, thank you, man. This is, I, it was genuinely a pleasure and it was heartbreaking to go back after our last conversation <laughs> and to go, I, I can't recreate that. I, I can't like, make that happen again. Yeah. We went off, we found another hour of just completely derailed conversation. I, just, I appreciate you. You're very direct in how you explained that there'd been a problem, which I, you know, anyone who makes stuff like over time, we just, it happens to all of us. And yeah. so the way that you explained it was very, just kind of upbeat and matter of fact. And I just had such a nice time talking before as and, and tonight, I was happy to do it again. Thank you so much. Well, it's um, the, the way that I describe this, cause not the first time this has happened where there's been an audio issue and you go back on it. Um, I go back to losing my virginity is what I think about. It's like, it's, there's this, uh, the immediate thrill of being in that moment and going through it followed by immediate shame and embarrassment. And it's just like, Oh God, look at what I've done. This is what, what did I do? And so it's that like cycle that you go through right away. And it's yeah. Cause I, I mean, I've been following your work for years now and I'm a big fan of everything you Thank do. You so I, you're, when yeah. I see your name attached to stuff, I'm like, Oh, well, the, the, at the very least, I trust your taste in the projects that you attach yourself to. So it's always, and you know, I haven't even, I'm so excited for the Fletch movie. Um, <laughs> it's like speaking of things that are multiples of five and 10, I mean, the, the movie growing up was a big deal for me, but then when I discovered the books, I, that was just a whole world that kind of, they're fun. And there's a lot, yeah. of, I mean, that looks like that. If it's half as good as all the names attached to it, you'll be. Uh, let's talk again when it, when when it comes around and I'm allowed to talk about it. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again, and uh, please uh, congratulations to you and your wife on this film because you guys made Thanks, something Chris. really special. So thank you. I really really appreciate it. Thanks for All having right. me. Yeah, of course. Take care, Sam. Have a good night. Right. You too. Bye -bye. Take care. Man. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck, give me hope.
voice crack.